welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. Over the past four years, Greg Marshallden and I have aimed to interview a writer on some aspect of Canada's military in time for Remembrance Day. It's actually not an easy job because there are a lot of very good books published on Canada's military every year. But I have to say that this time the task went rather smoothly. Jack Granstein has just published Canada at War, Conscription, Diplomacy and Politics with the University of Toronto Press, and I just could not pass up the opportunity to catch up with the most productive historian of his generation. But first, a full disclosure, I am a fan. I've known Granstein since I signed up for his course on 20th century Canadian history in September 1980, 40 years ago. I had read my first Granstein book, his work entitled Canada's War that summer, but did not really know what to expect. This was at York University and courses ran the full academic year. We spent the whole month of October right to Remembrance Day on the First World War, and it was a delight I still recall vividly to this day. In fact, it was a fantastic course. Even if Granstein seemed to take pleasure in handing out terribly discouraging grades to poor, unsuspecting 20-year-olds. Forty years later, here we are. Jack Granstein, welcome for the third time to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you. Jack, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What is your first memory of war in Canada? You were a little kid. I was born in 1939, uh, so I don't remember anything about the beginning of the war, obviously. I think my first memory, I'm not even sure if it's true, is of a kind of demonstration on College Street, I think, on the day Franklin Delano Roosevelt died in April 1945. I must have been walking with my mother, and I saw these signs, and she explained what they said. I think I could read by then, but I'm not sure. And that just stuck in my head uh, ever since. Not a Canadian memory, I guess, but certainly a wartime memory. You remember people talking about FDR dying? They, there was, there was, uh, what is it? There was sadness in the air? I have no recollection of that. Uh, it's fascinating. Now, let's talk about your book. Your new book is called Canada at War. It's a compendium of scholarly articles and chapters that you've published over the past 50 years. What prompted you to go back through your own archives? How did you make the selection? Well, like you, I think, Pat, I always want to have something going. (laughs) I get uh, uneasy if I haven't got a project. And frankly, I'm beyond doing original research now. It's too hard and... uh, I think I've done my share in the past. So I thought that it would be useful to put together some of the articles I'd written that had uh, meaning to me and some that had fallen into the void because of where they were published in obscure edited volumes or uh, foreign publications. So I tried to bring together the two things, Uh, great interest to me, and things that people might not have read of mine. They've aged really well. I mean, they read as though they were written recently. Well, that's the uh, thing that pleased me most. Uh, Most of my research, when I did it, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, was really very thorough. I was always a, a research to the last document person. And I don't think that anyone 
has uh, found any or many holes in what I researched. And most of the subjects I work on have tended to fall out of favor in the current historical profession. So I thought there might be some people who would break the chains of the present and look back at the past in a different way. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to ask you, I'll ask you a reverse version of the question we normally ask in the Champlain Society podcast. Normally, we ask people, did you discover new archives? But in your case, I'm going to ask, where are your archives? Have you, have you deposited your papers in, in, a, in an archive somewhere, or are you hoarding that in your basement? I don't have a basement. I live in a condo. <laughs> My personal archives are at York University, in the York Archives. And they're a very large collection that I add to every couple of years when my filing cabinet gets full. Um, I don't any longer have the archival research that I did. I used to Xerox extensively, and I had yes. tens of thousands of pages of, of uh, Xerox, including some horribly expensive ones from the British archives. Yes, But I gave them away. I gave some to Penny Bryden at University of Victoria, I gave a large chunk to uh, Doug Delaney at Royal Military College, and some, I'm embarrassed to say, I threw out. I could have used them many times in the 17 years since I tossed them. I have to say there was a lesson there for me. You won't remember this, but uh, when I was doing my master's, I wound up at the, um, at, at the Canadian Archives, Library and Archives Canada, as we call it today, and I was uh, there patiently writing out notes from documents. And, and there you were at the other end of the table, flipping through files like crazy, putting these these uh, these little lanyards <laughs> in every file and having them photocopy. And I said, why am I not doing that? <laughs> so photocopying is a great trick. <laughs> it was time saving and, and ultimately cost saving. The less time you had to spend in Ottawa, the cheaper it was. Yes. So every time you could Xerox, you saved uh, a day's hotel room. Very much so. But you see, my professors did not tell me that. I had to see it from you uh, sitting across the table. It was, uh, it was a great experience. Now, I, I want to go back over uh, what you've written. Um, and, and as I read your book again, it, it makes me think that over your long career, there have been two issues that have prompted some of your very best writing. The first issue was conscription, and the second issue was Mackenzie King. You came out very early in your career as a bitter critic of Canada's governments when it came to forcing young men to join the war effort. I even remember very intensely your, the lecture you gave us 40 years ago that condemned the Borden government on conscription because you told us that there was a supply of soldiers waiting in Great Britain. You've changed your mind on this, and you, you say so in your book. Can you, can you remind our readers what went through your mind as, as your views changed? Well, first, there really was a supply of soldiers in Great Britain. The 5th Canadian Division was sitting there as an appeasement to Sam Hughes, and it took until February 1918 for it to be broken up and the men to get overseas. But in fact, as it turned out, and this is where I was wrong, the conscripts who got overseas from Canada in starting in March, April, May 1918, uh, really were vitally important. Only 24,000 of the 100,000 
got to Britain and to, uh, and to Europe. But that was 500 men for each of the 48 battalions in the Canadian Corps, a huge reinforcement. And although the casualties were enormously heavy in the late stages of the war, uh, the conscripts that were still on the way from Canada would have been enough to keep the Canadian Corps at full strength until 1919. And why that mattered is that a full-strength battalion can do things that a half-strength battalion cannot. I'd been in the Army. Uh, I hadn't realized the, the mistake it was to send half-strength units into an attack. More men got killed because they didn't have the firepower to put down the enemy. Uh, how I missed that, I don't know. It was stupidity, I think. Oh, I don't think so. Well, it was. <laughs> I should have known. I was. If I'd been a better soldier, I would have known. That realization came to me probably just after I spoke to your class in 1980. Really? And I started revising my attitude to conscription. It was politically a disaster in Canada. Yes. for all the obvious reasons. But militarily, in the First World War, it served a substantial purpose, winning the war, and it really did help in that effect. In the Second World War, uh, in part because of good luck, the fact that the Canadians were out of action from November 1944 to February 1945, the fact that the Canadian Corps in Italy was being moved to Western Europe, that meant that casualties were down. And so the conscription crisis of 1944, in fact, turned out to be uh, not really very severe by good chance. Of course, people didn't know that. They couldn't see the future, couldn't see the reduced casualties. Uh, again, the political impact of that was serious, but nowhere near as serious as in the first war, in part because Mackenzie King much better than Sir Robert Borden, was able to placate Quebec, able to finesse the issue, able to keep his party more or less together. And that was critical. All the same, Jack, it took tremendous courage for you to announce that you were changing your mind. We don't, we don't have that in Canadian history all that much. Canadian historians don't tend to change their minds a whole lot. And I find that somewhat disheartening. Uh, anybody who who wrote something 40 years ago and hasn't changed his views on what he put in print, in, to my mind, isn't thinking very clearly. Uh, there are new papers. There are new facts. There are new ideas. The way we look at the past changes. And it seems to me very useful. And I actually have tried to do this on many subjects, not just conscription, not least Mackenzie King, I think. We'll come to him later, yes. Yeah. Um, I think it's very useful for historians to do that. And I don't think it's a bad thing at all to say, I changed my mind. Here's a slightly revised or sharply revised version of what I said in 1970 or 1980 or 1990. I think it's useful for historians to do that. You say in your final chapter, in fact, that we need to be collectively a lot more critical about our past. Is it because there are new papers or, or, or do, are you saying that historians have a duty to keep revisiting uh, what they've written before or to reassess what their research revealed in light of new discoveries? 
Yeah, I think there's there's a need to reassess, as I've just said. But I think it's really important to get away from the Canada is good. We're in a cancel culture moment now when that idea may be disappearing. Yes. But military historians have tended to be very positive about Canada's role in the first war and in the second and in Korea and in peacekeeping. And we have tended to gloss over, I think, some of the flaws, some of the uh, needless casualties, some of the lousy leadership, uh, some of the triumph of politics over military necessity. And I think if Canadians could adopt a bit of the sharp temper that many Brits have used in writing about their military past, or the Americans, uh, I think it'd be very useful to a, a broader, more realistic interpretation of how we fought the two world wars. I think we could we could probably say that about a lot of areas of Canadian history. We tend to, as historians, we tend to focus on what has been done. We don't often dwell on what has not been done because it's difficult to document what has not been done. And yet I find myself often asking, well, what if he had done this? Or what if he had done that? Or why didn't they think of this? I mean, we wind up in a speculative kind of history, but maybe that's the kind of of thinking we should be doing. What are the lost opportunities? We don't often think of the lost opportunities, do we? I worry about counterfactual history. It's a it's good sport. It's fun to be able to say, if they'd done this, then this would have happened. But of course, we don't know. It's hard enough for us as historians to figure out what did happen. And, yes. and that requires all our time. Sure, let's look at what they could have done better but let's not turn it into current of counterfactual history. Right, so there's a fine line to draw there. The other issue I wanna to talk to you about is Mackenzie King. And in here, I, I want to, uh, I'd like to hear you th tell us about how you went about this. When you were first writing, so uh, in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, when you're doing your PhD, the attitude towards Mackenzie King in Canada, let, let's, be, let's be fair, was deeply critical. People did not like Mackenzie King. They did not remember Mackenzie King very well. In fact, your first book was on the on the wartime conservatives. And yet you wound up being you wound up leading Canadians in a rediscovery of Mackenzie King. What changed your mind on on that prime minister? Well, working on the conservatives in the Second World War was to watch a party stumble, lurch, stagger, and almost destroy itself. And one of the reasons they did that was that they simply could not outsmart Mackenzie King. He played them perfectly. He kept them off balance. He did what a uh, prime minister um, does if he's trying to stay in power. And it seemed to me very hard to come out of the Second World War without admiring Mackenzie King. Most of the accounts of King tend to say that he did a very good job in the war. And probably that was what set my attitude in place. I wasn't looking at King as uh, a stumbling leader in the 1920s. I wasn't looking at King as a weak depression leader. I was looking at King when he was at his best. And I think that shaped my view. It seems to have shaped the view of many Canadian historians because by the late 1990s, when you when you conducted the first survey of historians, 
about prime ministers, Mackenzie King wound up being number one. I have to admit I was astonished and pleased at that. <laughs> Norman Hilmer and I uh, did that survey for Maclean's. Uh, we had been on a holiday in, in Hawaii and we got the New York Times on Sunday and there was an article in there by Arthur Schlesinger Jr. on rating the American presidents. And I can still remember sitting around the pool and saying to Norman, why don't we do this for Canada? And yes. uh, we had the book out within a year, I think, after that. And yeah. it was it was very useful. It wasn't a perfect survey. Uh, no. We didn't have enough uh, range. We had too few people. We probably had too many old guys, not too many young historians. Uh, we had a few French Canadians, but not enough. But nonetheless, it was still revealing that King was picked, despite the fact that nobody liked him much, uh, seemed to me uh, realistic. I, my favorite line on Mackenzie King is from his uh, party chief party organizer, uh, Lambert, in the during the Second World War. He yes. said, stand up close to Mackenzie King, and it's like being next to a fetid, unhealthy object. But stand back a ways, and he looks better and better. And I thought that was the ultimate description of King, and it seemed to me to be what the historians, whether they knew of that quote or not, decided. Stand back a ways, and he looked better and better. Well, certainly his war record salvaged his reputation, didn't it? Had he had he stepped out of power, had he had he not been had he not been reelected in 1940, he would have been the, the historical memory would have been very different, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. He would have been seen as a a drone, who a man who did some things on the uh, establishing Canada's uh, uh, independence and in foreign policy, but not very much. But the war, when he ran this extraordinary war effort when he gave his really good ministers their head, when he brought in people like Saint Laurent, who you know very well, to uh, take part in the war effort and play an, an important role, he he was superb. Um, I suppose people would say, well, he did it because he had a good cabinet. Well, who picked the cabinet? Exactly. Uh, he did it because he was, I almost blush when I say this, a leader. He was able to lead. There's another quote I love, uh, Chubby Power, saying liberals would step forward to fight for Laurier. Some would even do it for Mackenzie King. I thought, well, yeah, they would. They didn't love him like Laurier, but they respected him and would stand up for him. He also commanded authority and uh, among the civil service, and you've you've done yeoman work in documenting the civil service that worked for him. The Ottawa Men was arguably my favorite book. Uh, it was a collective biography of the Mandarins, the 15 or so key civil servants who ran Canada for the government between 1935 and 1957. People like O.D. Skelton, people like Bill McIntosh, uh, a host of others who were extraordinarily capable. King didn't always do what they wanted, but he did quite often. And when he did, it usually worked out very well. His ministers weren't always happy because the the uh, mandarins sometimes seemed a little too left. They wanted to push for family allowances. 
they worried about that. But in the end, the government moved uh, very effectively to run an extraordinary war effort abroad and at home. Uh, Canadians ate better during the Second World War, despite rationing than they had in the 1930s during the Depression. Yeah. Canadians had more money because they had all the work they could handle, all the overtime they wanted. Uh, we came out of the war in 1945 with money in the bank. People had saved. People could afford to buy a new fridge, a new stove, maybe a car. And those were the things that kept the economy moving in the immediate post-war as we returned to a peacetime world. And that was the plan, and it worked. Forty years ago, you, were, I think, had just published The Ottawa Men, and so uh, your lectures were very heavy on the public service, as I recall. I think I learned more about public administration in your course than any other, and it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a main topic. Uh, and you, of course, you were writing your biography of, of Norman Robertson at that time also. Yeah, Robertson was an interesting character. I wasn't very happy with that book. It's a, it's a good book on his role as a uh, civil servant in key roles, but it, I couldn't get into his personality. His widow was very determined that I stay on the public role and stay off the personal. And so it, it didn't strike me as a wholly satisfying biography. I think it's good on the uh, on his his attitudes and his policies and what he tried to do and what he wasn't able to do. But I don't think it really worked as a portrait of the man. It's still a fantastic book. <laughs> well, thank you. But it could have been better if I'd been able to get the whole man in. You never met him, right? No, he died in 1968. You've written journalism. You've written magazine articles. You've written books. You've written about public policy. You've written about the military, about about politics, about international relations, Canada's foreign policy. You've written biography. Um, what was your favorite? What was your favorite genre? I mean, did, did you, what, what did you get the most pleasure out of writing? You know what? I always found writing hard. I'd never thought it was pleasurable. It was hard work. And yes. it used to annoy the hell out of me that I wasn't paid for it the way I should have been. Um, you publish a book and it turns out $2,000 over 10 years, whoopee. Yeah. And it's taken you two or three years to do it. Uh, that's that's hard to, to bear, frankly. But I did it because, as I said at the beginning, I needed projects, I needed things to do. And so I looked actively for places where I could write on subjects that interested me. Um, I wrote, uh, on the Royal Military College and Saturday Night Magazine. I, yes. wrote, I wrote on the uh, evacuation of the Japanese Canadians in Saturday Night Magazine, and then in an academic article. Uh, I wrote uh, hundreds of pieces in the Canadian Forum, where I was on the board for a long time. I wrote columns for uh, the Canadian Global Affairs Institute out of Calgary. I did all kinds of writing, but my real work was on the books, on the scholarly books. I'm not sure how many uh, academic peer-reviewed books I have, but it must be <laughs> over 15, maybe close to 20. And yes. those are the ones that matter, ultimately. The popular books are intended to reach a broader audience. Um, 
I'd like to think some of my academic books reached a broader audience, but realistically, I know that broad audience is about 2,000 people. Um, the popular books sometimes did very well. Who Killed Canadian History, for example, came out in 1998, and it has sold over 20,000 copies, and I think it had some substantial impact in some of the provinces. And certainly, it made me a lot of friends and enemies in the historical profession. That was kind of a polemic. You, you enjoyed writing polemics like that? Oh, yeah. It's great fun. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't my first polemic. Uh, Robert Bothwell and David Berkison and I had done uh, The Great Brain Robbery uh, and another book on university education. And that made a lot of people very angry with us in the late 80s. Um, <laughs> It's kind of fun getting people angry at you and then having a good, tough discussion about issues that matter. Um, who Killed Canadian History? I had left academe at that point. I had just become director of the Canadian War Museum. And I was uh, basically saying, I didn't like where the historical profession was going. It We had abandoned, I thought, good scholarship for trendiness we had begun to fraction, uh, fracture Canadian history into different warring uh, groups. The labor historians were a perfect example who were at each other's throats all the time. Um, and I could see that what I was writing, the kind of history I was writing, military history, Canadian-American relations, international policy, foreign affairs, politics, those, those kinds of subjects were fading away in the profession. Uh, you just, it just wasn't popular anymore for historians to write uh, in those backwards, primitive areas. Great men history. I just, I, I hated where we were going. Well, your prediction has borne itself out. The, the, the history classes are empty now. Well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, it's extraordinary. I had lunch with the chair of the then chair of the history department at York University a couple of years ago, and he bemoaned his enrollments. And I said, "Well, you know, I could I'm sure you could find two hundred kids very eager if you had somebody teach Canadian military history." And he said, yeah. and, "And he was exactly right. Oh, they would never let me do that. They, meaning his colleagues." You left York, and you were not replaced. No, I wasn't. In fact, none of the political historians who left York were replaced. Uh, York is now very trendy, uh, very indigenous, very labor, very women's history. Uh, it's so trendy, it's no longer much Canadian history. Jack, let's go back. Uh, I want to know more about, about you and share some of your thoughts uh, with, with our listeners. Why did you become a historian? You could have done pretty well anything. You're a very smart young man in the military. Why did you choose history? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> when I when I went to RMC, I had intended to do politics and economics, but it turned out that I simply was incapable of understand, understanding economics. Uh, it's extraordinary to me that I ended up writing quite a bit about economics. I, I owed the army time. I had to pay off the army three years for uh, the education I'd been given. Uh, but I managed to get a leave without pay to do my MA at Toronto. 
I took Jack Saywell's seminar, and it was one of the first times that I thought that history was really interesting and that there was something well worthwhile doing there. And then I went back into the Army after that and managed to get a, another leave without pay to do a PhD at Duke University. The Army was being very tolerant in letting me do this, and I suppose they knew I wasn't going to stay in the, in the military. And at Duke, I wrote what became the PhD thesis that turned into my book on the conservatives in the Second World War. And by then I was hooked. You were hooked and you found a job. You found a job at York very quickly. I, Jack Saywell hired me. I must have done well enough in his class that he <laughs> thought it wasn't a mistake. And uh, I stayed there for for 30 years. It was, it was for a time the single best history department in North America, in my view. Oh, I think so. Certainly far and away the best Canadian history group of historians ever. Uh, Ramsey Cook, Fernand Ouellet, uh, Saywell, uh, Irving Abella, uh, Chris Armstrong, Viv Nellis, Peter Oliver, and it goes on and on and on. A first-class grouping and all publishing like crazy, really changing history, I think, the way it was understood in Canada. And so it, it was really something that that was very pleasurable for me. A lot of fights, a lot of difficulty, but overall, an extraordinary experience. And as a student, because I was a student then, uh, a very rich experience. I, I studied under all, all of those people. Jack, you've been writing for 60 years. Has your view of Canada changed in those 60 years? I'm not sure it has. I, I think I understood right from the start that this was a somewhat fragile country. The French-English divide was very real, uh, and it had to be managed. Our successful politicians were the ones who could manage it. The unsuccessful ones flubbed it totally. And that simply mattered. And that hasn't changed. It's still there today. People don't realize to what degree Canada is fragile. Well, I, we only realize it when there's a Quebec referendum. On, on staying in Canada or not. Uh, I think people realized it on René Levesque's first referendum, and they realized it again in 95 on the second referendum. Um, and the second one was, of course, a, a squeaker, 1% difference. Sure, sure. Now, we say at the moment that separatism is dead, the Party Québécois looks like it might not even survive, but I don't really believe there are lessons in history. But if there is any lesson in Canadian history, it's that Quebec separatism only needs one issue to burst into flame. And it will always be a subject requiring uh, enormous care in the handling. And it will be the test of our politicians. I, I want to ask you, I mean, you say that there are no lessons in Canadian history. I want to push back on that. Are you sure there's nothing? I mean... You, you've devoted your life to history. Surely there are lessons about our past that we need to keep in mind today. Sure, there are lessons, but they are so general that anyone who tries to rely on them as a map for the uh, future in dealing with potential crises will get it wrong. Personality matters. The people who are shaping the debate matter. The, the way they get their information matters. 
which party is in power matters. But are those lessons in history? I don't think so. They're just uh, pointers to what our previous leaders did and maybe a warning or two on what they shouldn't do, but that's about all there is. You say that, but you know, there are many academics who feel as though personalities do not matter, that personalities are interchangeable and at the end of the day don't really make much of a difference. You don't believe that. And those academics are just flatly wrong. Personality matters enormously. Anyone who could look at Pierre Trudeau, for example, and think that personality did not matter uh, in the 70s and the early 80s is would miss the whole point, it seems to me. Trudeau's personality, his attitudes, shaped the way he dealt with Quebec, the way he dealt with civil rights and uh, people's liberties. And I think that his personality was enormously important. It shaped our country. Yes, that's the point. Personality shaped the country. Are there any heroes in Canadian history, Jack? I mean, there's a hall of honor. You know this. There's a hall of honor in the center block on Parliament Hill. And there's absolutely nothing in our Hall of Honor. Are, are, we have real trouble in this country with heroes. What's your stance on that? Should we have heroes in this in this country? Are there heroes in our history? Uh, there are heroes, in my view, but it's a very bad time to have heroes. We're in the midst of the cancel culture. You've been speaking out against it uh, with great determination, and I admire you for that. Uh, people who want to say there are only evildoers. John A. Macdonald is, uh, may have created Canada, but Canada was a racist country that uh, put Indians into starvation or uh, semi-slavery or into the residential schools. A genocidal country. Yeah, that outweighs anything that he did in the view of these people. I think it's nonsense. I think anyone you look at in any period will have black marks on them. Tommy Douglas, the greatest Canadian, according to a poll on the, the CBC, wrote his MA thesis on eugenicism, eugenics, which was basically racism. Do away with the uh, inferior and and nurture the, the uh, dynamic races. How would that play today? Well, we know how it would play. Does anybody attack Tommy Douglas? No, he's a saint. Laurier, Laurier continued the residential schools. Does anybody attack Laurier? Well, no, they don't seem to, although I can't believe it'll be very long before they do. Tommy Douglas will escape the ax, but I somehow suspect that Laurier and King and probably Saint Laurent and maybe even Pearson will suffer the slings and arrows of cancel culture. If we gave you a choice to put someone or two or three people in the Hall of Honor, who would you pick? Well, I certainly would put MacDonald in. I think he was a great politician who created a country uh, that today ranks among the very best places in the world to live. I have always thought of Canada as God's country, and I attribute much of that to MacDonald. Now, you know I would say Mackenzie King belongs in there, <laughs> if only because of the skillful way he ran the Second World War. And establishing the social welfare state and increasing Canada's independence in the world. I think those are three achievements that deserve recognition. Uh, I'd probably stop there. I wouldn't want to make Trudeau a hero. I did, didn't ever vote for Trudeau. Uh, I wouldn't want 
Stephen Harper. I don't think I'd want Justin Trudeau. Um, not Brian Mulroney. It's pretty tough to think of of others who might fit there. I guess I should say Laurier. I would put Laurier in. First Francophone prime minister, uh, created the great immigration boom, um, tried very hard to keep French and English together, and in the end uh, was defeated by Anglo-Canadian and Franco-Canadian racism. Beyond politicians, Jack, do you see anybody else? I mean, would you put some of your your favorite public servants or soldiers or generals? You've written about all these things. That's why I'm asking, are there others who belong in the Hall of, in the hall of Honor? Well, I think Arthur Curry, mm -hmm. commander of the Canadian Corps in the First World War, yes. was without question Canada's single greatest soldier. Um, an unlikely looking man, a great belly over uh, pipes and <laughs> legs, weak chin, but he was a courageous, uh, individual who fought to win, tried to save his soldiers' lives, and as is unfortunately so often the case in Canada, got smeared at the end of the war and into the 1920s by people who criticized him for all the wrong reasons. A very Canadian welcome, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. <laughs> and the, the, the other one that I put in is the creator of the Canadian Public Service as a uh, a very fine instrument of government, Oscar Douglas Skelton. Uh, Norman Hilmer, my friend and colleague, has written an excellent biography of Skelton, and I think a very good case could be made that Skelton belongs in any Hall of Honor. Do you have any advice for a young historian today? Well, the best advice I could give him is learn to write. I am so sick and tired of academic historians writing books that read as if they'd been churned out by political scientists on speed or <laughs> sociologists or uh, you name it. It's, it used to be that historians had one trait. They wrote readable prose. That's gone yes. now. There's very few historians writing these days. John English, Robert Bothwell, Norman Hilmer, David Berkison, who write prose that people actually want to read. And for a new historian, learning how to get the words down on paper in a way that conveys interest, excitement, revealing new material, making it to grip the reader. I think that's the key. I was never a great writer, Pat. The best I could do was to write straightforward prose. But I have to say that looking at what comes out these days, Granitstein's straightforward prose looks like uh, excellent prose. It really isn't, but it looks a lot better than it should be if everybody was writing good prose. Well, as I said at the outset, it, it doesn't age. It's still, it's still, I mean, and I've read everything you've written, I, I'm sure, and there are many scenes uh, that you've created or recreated um, that are that's still with me. You, you have a wonderful scene in your your book on uh, Norman Robertson, where Mackenzie King is fussing over the table arrangements because he wants to honor uh, Robertson. And he, I think the Robertson's parents are coming over for dinner at Laurier House. And the the image that you created is still with me. I mean, it was, it was well done. It was a well-crafted piece of writing. And you know, I don't even remember it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jack, if there was, I mean, you're you're eighty, you're eighty one, you're you're eighty one years old now. If you still had the health, and I know you're, gonna, I wish you long health, many, 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 many years to come. But if you still, if you had the energy, what book would you want to write that that you know that you will not write? Is there a book inside you that still needs to come out, but you know that you won't be able to write? Well, there's two. Okay. One is a good, complete, one-volume biography of Mackenzie King. I think yes. he is easily the most interesting character in Canadian history. He's so weird. He's not weird, Willie. I hate that term. But he is a strange man with strange desires, unfulfilled, many of them. But he has this wondrous diary that reveals his his thoughts and more than his thoughts. And it's it's a story that... I think has has yet to be told. Um, the official biographies were good, but they they were official. And we know so much more. Yeah, well, it's it's true. There is a vast array of new material. King's own uh, papers at the Library and Archives Canada are enormous, and it, it would be a life's work to go through them and write the biography that I mentioned. The the other book I always wanted to do, and I know I will never do it, and I'd be the wrong person to do it, would be a history of Quebec and the two world wars, to try to get into why Quebec reacted the way it did, uh, how English Canada played it wrong, could anything have been done to bring Quebec along, um, what was the real share of Quebec in the war effort at home and abroad, and I think that would be a, a hugely important book. Uh, it probably should be written by a Francophone, a Francophone who would be aware that he would be roasted, grilled, <laughs> tortured when it came out if he said anything that flew in the face of uh, the received versions of Canadian history. But it would be a hugely important book. Well, I hope... I hope he or she does that. I think, and I think both both projects I think are would be would be would be great ones. I I, I I agree with you. Those you know, come to think of it, those are really two things that we do need. Is there a history book, Jack, that you return to regularly? Is there something that you're that you keep at your elbow um, that reminds you of what good history is about? You know, there really isn't. Um... I tend not to go back to the books that I've read, except when I'm looking in them for something, uh, uh, for a piece I'm writing. Um, there are historians I admire. Uh, Jack Sewell, he's always good to read. Ramsey Cook is always good to read. Uh, John English's biographies of Pearson and Trudeau, superb. Hilmer on Skelton, they're good to read. They're at my elbow on my shelf. But in truth, I don't go back to them uh, to dip into them for pleasurable reading. They are, but frankly, I'm busy writing. You're too busy writing. <laughs> do you read British history or American history or other histories? I do. I read both. I like British history because biography isn't dead as a subject there. Yes. Uh, American history, the same can be said. I read British military history. I read American military history. Uh, I read on Churchill. I read, I'm reading uh, at the moment on appeasement in England in the 30s. Um, 
there are subjects that interest me and that will always interest me. But uh, my main interest is in Canadian history, and I wish there was more of it that I wanted to read. Well, Jack, what's inspiring is that at the age of 81, you have not tired of reading history, and you've not tired of, of making a contribution. Well, that's kind of you to say. I'm 81. I sometimes feel like 181. But uh, <laughs> uh, I hope I've got a couple more years to uh, play around. I hope you have many, many more. Thanks for this interview, Jack, and for all your work. Thank you, Pat. Hopefully we'll meet in person soon at your favorite dim sum table. Oh, God. <laughs> It'll be a while. Let's hope not. Thank you, Jack. That was Jack Granstein, the author of Canada at War, Conscription, Diplomacy, and Politics. It is published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on October 21st, 2020 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.